morning. It's definitely a privilege and an honor to be here this morning. It's a beautiful Sunday. Um, so this morning, just to give you a rundown, we are going to be um, walking through, talking through, looking at the concept of evangelism. That's what I was asked to preach on this morning. Uh, and so to do that this morning, typically when I often preach, I like to get into one passage and just walk through that passage. Um, this morning, I want to set the foundation for evangelism. So I want to look at what is the cause of evangelism? How do we do it? Uh, and so we got some work to do. And so we're going to be kind of hopping around all throughout the New Testament this morning. So um, <clears throat> as much as I would love to give you one piece of scripture and tell you this is where we're going to bear down, that is not going to be our case this morning. So I hope you have fast fingers and I uh, hope you've been practicing your sword drills because we're going to be doing some flipping. Uh, if not, you'll have to come back to blast and we'll do some sword drills together. Um, but before we get into it, let's open in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this church. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to come together to worship you, to glorify you, to be encouraged by your word, Lord. And uh, God, I do pray that you would speak through me, that this is your word, not my word, and that you would... Um, just cause us all to grow in our knowledge and understanding of who you are this morning. Lord, we pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. Giving and receiving news can be a funny thing. You might have some good news that you want to share and think that this is something wonderful and something exciting, and when you share it with others, you have no uh, way of knowing how they're going to react often, hopefully, usually, your hope is when I have good news and I share that good news with you, you will react in kind and say, yes, this is great news. But that is not always the case. For example, when my wife started school again to become a midwife, we knew along with our friends and family that there was a real possibility that we would have to move. Now, the knowledge and understanding that we might have to move was very different than the reality that we would actually move. And so it was easy to accept that news that we may have to move. It was much more challenging for many to accept the reality that we were, in fact, moving, and not just down the street, but a thousand kilometers away to the great city of Thunder Bay. And so when we got that news, of course, we grieved a little bit. We were sad. We didn't want to leave our friends and family and all that we had built in Sudbury. But nonetheless, we were excited. We, we knew this to be good news, and it was. It was good news for our family, our immediate family. Some of my kids might disagree with that, but it was good news. Um, and most of our friends and family uh, rejoiced in our good news with us, extending many congratulations and well wishes and prayers for the future and offer to help with moving and whatever we needed in that transition time. And for the most part, it was, it was received well, the news that we were moving there were some, of course, that were sad and, and disappointed, which we were as well. But then there were some that took this news that was, in fact, good news, and they took it almost as if it was a slight against them, and they became offended. In fact, the church that I was working at at the time, the senior pastor came to me and told me uh, in no uncertain terms that he was very disappointed that I was moving and wished that I wouldn't have to move and even offered that if I would consider moving back, he would give me a one-year sabbatical so that I could leave for the time and then come back. And I thought, this is great. Like, I am appreciated here. I am respected. They appreciate all that I have brought to this role in the church that I've been serving in for nine years. Wow, I feel appreciated and affirmed in my role here. 
that was what I was thinking. But he followed it up very quickly with, I don't want you to move because it would be too hard for me to have to find a new staff and hire them. It would be too stressful and difficult on me, and I'm too concerned about that. I was like, oh, so it has nothing to do with me or what I brought to this church. It's all about you, I see. Um, great. We haven't been back. Um, <laughs> um, still, others took it personally, implying that we chose to move all the way to Thunder Bay to escape them, to get away. Um, and that was a challenge because, of course, that was not our, our, our purpose in choosing to move here by any means. Um, but like I said, most people were thrilled for us. Most people were excited, disappointed. Um, but many people heard that news and responded poorly and were disappointed. So we don't know um, how people are going to respond when we have news to share. But still, we had to share this news. But regardless of how people responded, regardless of how we responded even, this news brought change to our lives. We were no longer able to stay in Sudbury. We had to change. Our relationships changed. People that we hung out with uh, changed. There's a lot of change that came as a result of this news, which is often the case with much news, right? When we receive news that we're going to be having a child or when we receive news that we're getting a new job or promotion, there's, there's change that comes with that news, um, as it should. Well, we got some news a few thousand years ago. After the fall, after mankind fell into sin in Genesis 3, God was very quick to give us news. God was very quick to give us good news. That good news that God gives us in chapter 3 of, of Genesis to our first parents, to our early ancestors, was that his kingdom was not gone forever. Instead, he told our first ancestors that Satan would be crushed. We fell into sin a long time ago, but right away, God wanted to comfort us with news. Moving forward through history, we see that that good news is manifest in Jesus and his death in our place on the cross. He was the only one able to completely and perfectly satisfy God's wrath for our sin and pay that debt with his life. As Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, that is to say, while we were lost and helpless, in lost and helpless position, unable to save ourselves, Christ died for us. The undeserving, perfect son of God paid the price of our sin debt with his own life. And that's not the end of the good news. The good news keeps going. If you keep reading through the gospels, you know that he rose from the grave. Acts 2.24 says death couldn't hold him. He conquered death and now sits with God at the right hand of God. Quick Bible verse to flip to, Romans 8. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there for a minute. Romans 8, 31. Romans chapter 8, 31 to 39 reads this way. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're given this good news. We're given this wonderful news. We, and perhaps I didn't set the stage properly and that's okay, but we fell into sin as mankind. We, at one time, had communion with God in the garden and that communion was broken by our sin and we were left hopeless in a sinful state. But right away, God is quick to remind us that one day a savior will come and crush the head of the snake. We see that in Christ. We see that here in Romans 8. That Christ died in our stead when we were sinners, rose again and is interceding for us on behalf, and now there is nothing that stands in our way because Christ is with us. And that is good news, right? I know we're, we're Baptists, but we can say amen. A little one can sneak out there. That's okay. That is the good news of Jesus, that God rich in grace and mercy, would send his son in our place as an atoning sacrifice. He conquered death, rose again, and one day is coming back for those who follow him. That's great news. Now I'm sure it is safe to assume that many here this morning have heard this before and that this good news might not be new news. I hope it's not new news for most of you. But whether this is your first or 500th time hearing it, this news needs to bring change to our lives. In Acts 17, when Paul preached this good news in Athens, he encountered a number of different responses. I'm not going to flip there, but Athens, uh, sorry, Acts 17, 32 to 34, we see Paul had just finished preaching. He was preaching in the city of Athens and people wanted to hear, so they brought him uh, to a larger meeting where he could preach to a whole multitude of people. And he was preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ And after hearing this, many people jeered and scoffed and mocked him and were disinterested and walked away. But that was their response. That was the change that it brought to them. Some wanted to hear more. They were interested. They were intrigued. They said, let's let's have him back. Let's learn more. And still others that day chose to follow Paul and follow Christ and surrender their lives to him. And so this is the response that I want to focus on this morning. The response of following Christ. Jesus likened that response um, of those that chose to follow him like a man who found a treasure. In Matthew 13, we read this parable. Very short, one verse. Matthew 13, verse 44. I'm sure many of you even know it. We get all of these awesome parables throughout Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then we're given this picture. But Matthew 13, 44 shows us this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This parable always intrigues me. I'm always struck by it. Right? Because what happens in this parable, this man finds his treasure in the field. That's the kingdom of heaven. You could argue that this man heard about Christ. He heard of the goodness of God. And what does he do? The picture Christ gives us is of complete change. When the man finds this treasure, that is when the man hears the gospel, the good news, he doesn't pay a partial price for it. He doesn't try and get it on 
discount. He doesn't try to give only 50% of what he has. He doesn't spend part time at his field. He doesn't go to the field on Christmas and Easter and maybe Thanksgiving, right? And then spend the rest of his time pursuing his own interests. There is no attempt to barter with the owner of the field. When this man finds this treasure, when this man understands Christ and eternity, his response is simple. He sells everything that he has. He gives up all that he was, all that he is, and buys that field and rejoices in that. There's no part-time at the field and part-time with the rest of his stuff. He doesn't try to bring down the price. He's 100% in. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 to 9. Spend some time there for a moment. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9 says this. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone, th- if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I think a lot of us in different ways feel we have value and worth that we can, that sets us apart, that sets us up. I'm not, I don't have a PhD, but I imagine that if I had a PhD, I'd like to think I would be humble, but let's be honest, I'd be a little bit like, it's Dr. Inza, please. Look at me, I'm great. Look at what I've accomplished. And perhaps, um, This is for that sake that I will never accomplish a PhD and that is okay. But Paul here is saying, if anyone has reason to brag, if anyone has anything that sets them apart, that sets them above, that sets them better than others, it's me. He's born in the right tribe. He was circumcised on the right day. He was born to the right people. As to the law of Pharisee, meaning he held the law perfectly. As to zeal, he believed so much that he persecuted those that would stand against him. And then he met Christ. And realized all that he had accomplished, all that he'd set out to do, all of his hopes and dreams, all of his plans, everything that he had in comparison to knowing Christ was worthless. And that's this man in the field. He finds that treasure in the field and he sees the glory of the treasure. He understands the glory of God and what heaven is and he realizes that everything he has outside of that treasure is worthless. And so rather than trying to hold on to some of it for himself and still kind of do the field treasure as well, he counts it all as loss. He sells it all to gain everything. And that is the picture that Paul is writing here to the Philippian church Everything I have, everything that I hope for, everything that I was about, 
outside of Christ is worthless. So I was asked to speak on evangelism this morning, and I I am making my way there, but my concern is that many people in the general church today haven't fully grasped the goodness of this good news. We've seen the treasure in the field, but we're not fully prepared to give up all we have and all we are. We clutch onto our own hopes and dreams and desires, hoping to find fulfillment outside of God. Yes, even in the church, we are guilty of this. My dad is a pastor and he works to bring revitalization to broken churches. That's kind of his role right now. He serves churches across the province. And one of the stories that he tells, and I'm not sure his exact interaction with this church, but one of the stories he tells is of a church that split over whipped cream. And I wish I was joking. I wish I was making that up. I don't know the whole story. I don't need to know the whole story. But the essence of the story was this. There was a debate about potlucks and whether you could serve whipped cream or Cool Whip with the dessert. And that created a feud between some of the people, which created a feud between more people, which created a feud between the church. And eventually this church ceased to meet as the church itself because they could not get over whether or not Cool Whip or whipped cream was appropriate topping to serve on your dessert. And it's funny, and we kind of laugh about it, and that's fair, but it's telling, and it's sad, and it's disappointing. And we may not have pride over whipped cream or Cool Whip here or in your churches that you grew up in, but if we're not careful, that pride seeps in. That self seeps in. Brenning Manor, and then later, more famously, probably DC Talk, made this quote, Great, he said, Brenning Manor said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. When we forget that we are broken, sinful people, pride sinks into our heart. And if I was someone on the outside looking in and you were trying to tell me of the goodness of God while ending friendships over whipped cream, I would have nothing to do with it. That would be a hard sell. Instead, when we remember the grace that we received in spite of being a sinful person, when I remember the grace I received even though I am a sinner among sinners, when I remember that grace, then I can certainly get over myself and not be offended by the wrong whip topping on my dessert. Just for the record, if you ever come and visit, I'll take anything, whipped cream or Cool Whip, it's good. It's fine by me. In fact, skip the dessert, just bring me some whipped cream, we're great. But when believers act like Christ, that is when a believer is 100% sold out We've bought the field. We live fully for Christ. We fully understand the good news. We can't help but show it. We can't help but tell others. When we haven't sold out fully, when we're still living for self, that pride sneaks in. We complain, we argue, we are less than our perfect selves. We are less than what Christ intended us to be. Who's gonna wanna listen to to us what we have to say about this good God when we're arguing over nonsense, when we're arguing over insignificant things, but when we have fully understood, when we have fully bought in, 
Not only will we not be able to not tell others, we will want to tell others, we'll be excited to tell others. Just by how we live and how we act, people will see and want to know that. Know why we're excited, know what's going on in our lives. I was very excited to become a dad. I probably should have been more nervous than excited, but I was very excited, I couldn't wait. Um, we had kids fairly young, not super young, but fairly young. I believe I became a father at 25. Um, I was very excited. But the summer we got pregnant with our first, we were living at camp. When we were living at camp, we were living at camp with about uh, 60 staff, 60 plus staff were there around us and about 150 weekly campers. So there was a lot of people around all the time and we were living like right in the middle of camp. And I was very involved in camp and so we were around people. Needless to say, there was lots of people around. And like I said, I was very excited to become a dad. And I remember I had just got back from a canoe trip. Surprise, surprise. Spent a lot of time doing that. I just got back from a canoe trip and Margaret ran into me or she found me, she pulled me aside. I don't exactly remember how that happened. That's less important, but she got my attention and she pulled me aside. Maybe we made it to home. She told me the good news that we were gonna have a son and my life changed forever. I guess she didn't say son at that time, I didn't know. She told me we were gonna have a baby. Good news, I was ecstatic, I was so excited, my life was going to change. And now I know <clears throat> most people, in many ways wise people, often wait a few weeks before they go and spread that joyous news for various reasons. They wanna make sure that uh, the baby is viable, that things are good, and so people often tend to wait a little while to tell people, and my wife, who's wise in many ways, asked me to do the same. She asked me to wait. And maybe if we didn't live on site. Maybe if our dining room didn't have 150 other people in it. Maybe if I wasn't surrounded by people who cared about me 24-7, I would have kept the news a little bit longer. Maybe. I don't think I lasted an hour. I don't think an hour went by before I started blabbing to my staff, I am gonna be a father. To which then I realized what I had done and then I said, don't tell Margaret I told you. <laughs> she won't like that. They told, and I told more people, so it's okay. But it was some significant, exciting news. It was news too significant for me to keep personal and I spread that news around like wildfire. I don't think it took more than a week for everybody on staff to know, and so we had to get creative because we were both full-time staff, and so we had, to, we had to rush to beat myself from telling all the random staff and tell our boss so that he could know, so that he wouldn't hear it just in passing. I made a silly joke. I told him Margaret had Egyptian flu. He didn't find that funny. Um, but the news spread because I was so excited. I was fired up. I'm gonna be a dad. I'm gonna have a kid. I'm gonna get to pour my heart and soul and life into this child. I'm gonna fail and mess up, but it's gonna be wonderful. I think I've done an okay job. You think she would have learned, or you think I would have learned, you think one of us would have learned, but certainly when we had the next two kids, the conversation was the same. Please don't tell anybody. I promise I won't tell anybody. I told people. Because it was good news, it was great news. When we have great news, when we have good news, when we have life-changing news, we should want to, we should long to share that news with others. And that's the picture of the gospel. In fact, the Greek word for gospel and the Greek word for evangelize come from the same Greek word, euangelion. You meaning good and angelion meaning announcement. We have this good announcement. And when we understand that that good news, that is 
to accept it fully. It's no longer good news. It's the best news. You hear the gospel. It's good news when we accept the gospel. It is the best news. We were broken. We were sinners. We were lost. We were without hope. Christ died for us in our place. We are no longer on a track destined to hell. We are spending eternity in glory with Christ. That's not just good news anymore. That is the best news. I have never received better news. And so when we receive the good news and are changed by it, it has to become our best news. We should be excited to share that news. But I understand and and get it that sometimes that can be challenging, sometimes that can be scary, and, and Christ knew that too, and so he gives us this commission, this command in Matthew 28 to go and share that news. Matthew 28, I'm sure most of us know that as well. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there as well. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. We are gonna actually camp here for a minute or two and look at it in detail. Starting in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This great news, the best news, gets even better. Christ tells us all authority has been given to him. Right? If he is our king, if he is for us, if we are found in him and he in us, and all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth, what can stand in our way? What risk is there? What worry is there? What concern is there? We are found in Christ and Christ in us and all authority is in him. He is the king of kings. The news that he died for us and rose again was great and now it's even better. We serve the one true God, the king above all kings. That is what is at the center of this great news that we have been tasked with bringing to the world. The king of kings, the Lord of lords. His authority is all that matters. He is over all things. That's how we start. There's no confusion of who's sending us. I am King Jesus. I am over all, and I am now sending you out to bring my good news to the world. Then he gives us the what, which is go and make disciples. This is a spot where we could spend a lot of time. We could look at all of the different topics, all the different approaches, all of the different ways. I was in a meeting a couple of years ago with a group of pastors, and we were discussing the possibility of a joint evangelistic event and we're discussing what it could look like and how we would do it, what our approach would be. Um, and these are predominantly um, like student ministry pastors, youth pastors, family pastors. So, so our, our focus was more on the cool kids. No, not really, but we're, we're focusing on youth. And this one guy got up, and I'll never forget it. He gets up and he, he's kind of in a frenzy. He's kind of frustrated and upset. And he starts telling us off and he starts telling us, that rather than being upfront about it, we need to engage in what he called covert evangelism. So we need to secretly bring the gospel to these people without them realizing them and more or less like sneak them into the kingdom of heaven. We need them to be evangelized without them realizing they're being evangelized too, lest they realize we're talking about Jesus and run away. And he was talking about bringing in some skateboarders and 
dirt bikes and kind of doing like an X Games thing and like secretly being like, surprise, you just heard about Jesus. And I'm not one to call people out very often, but I absolutely shut that down. That is nonsense. The gospel is the good news. And we don't need to apologize for it. We don't need to try to hide it. We don't need to try to trick people into believing it. The gospel stands for itself and it is great news. I always enjoy watching TV shows that portray Christians. I'm always just curious to see how the world views us, what their perspective of Christians are. And it's usually disappointing and it's usually sad. And um, sometimes you have to laugh, otherwise you'll just cry. But there's this TV show called Community and someone sent me a clip of this one woman who was the Christian of the group. And they're just, it was just in passing this reference, I'm not totally sure, but uh, I guess she had had a pool party. And at the pool party they found out that it was actually a secret baptism and she said, they were offended that she would try to baptize them secretly at her pool party. And her response was, well, excuse me for trying to sneak you into heaven. And it's, but it's, it's sad because we don't need to do that. We don't need to operate that way. We don't need to cover up or make excuses for or, or apologize for the gospel. We need to share the gospel the way it was intended to be shared. Unashamed, publicly, boldly, because we serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. Don't need to operate in covert evangelism. But this brings us to the question of how then, how are we to evangelize? And I'm here to say there isn't one right answer. Some people like a right answer. Some people like a do A, B, and C, and then you'll have D, which is they'll be saved. And it doesn't work that way in my opinion. Frankly, there isn't one right answer. There's a lot of different approaches. You could ascribe to the Ray Comfort way of the master technique, which if you're not familiar, that one's very like abrasive and in your face face and on the street and essentially you walk up to people and you say, are you a good person? And they go, yeah, I'm a good person. And then you say, okay, well, let's look at the Ten Commandments and we'll see if you're a good person by that standard. And so they go, have you murdered anybody? And I say, no, I'm not good. So, but Jesus said that if you have hate towards your brother in your heart, then you've actually committed murder. And have you had that? And I'm like, well, yeah, like I've hated people. Okay, well, you're a murderer. So like, have you stolen anything? Yeah, I took five bucks from my mom's purse when I was a kid. Okay, so you're a thief. It says, you know, he talks about adultery and how Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, then you've committed adultery. Have you ever done that? Yeah, okay, I've done that. Okay, so you're a lying, thieving, adulterous, murderer at heart, right? And if you were to die today, what would happen? And they're often like, oh, shoot, I'd be in trouble. But then he kind of walks away and moves on to the next person. So no follow-up, but it's, a, it's one way to go. It's an approach. You could take the apologetics approach and defend the faith, and you could use, there's a lot of resources for apologetics. Tim Keller's Reason for God is a good book for that. You could read any number of books. You could go to any number of classes and seminars. You could spend an eternity just learning how to evangelize. But the best way to do it, best of all, is be intentional where you go every day. You want to evangelize? Be 100% sold for the gospel. Be intentional where you are, when you are, when you're with those that don't know the Lord. And certainly when you're with those that do know the Lord. I frequently tell my students that God has placed you where you are on purpose. I can't go to your school. I can't sit in on your classes. I can't follow you to your office. I can't hop in a plane with you. I can't do those things. I can't go to the people that you're with every day and convert them. I will get kicked out. I will get potentially arrested, it won't go very well for me, but God has you there on purpose. So be there intentionally. 
Be confident in your faith. Be sold out for that treasure that you found in the field. Be confident in that. And if you want to be encouraged, I love reading through Acts. I've been reading through Acts this summer. I've read through it now three times because it's just such an encouraging book. Um, But it seems like every paragraph ends with something like, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, the apostles and those who learned of Jesus from their teaching continued day by day to share the gospel with the world, with those that were around them, with those that were in their vicinity, where they were, and from their faithfulness. And those that came afterwards, we have this long and faithful line of men and women devoted to Jesus and his word. And from that faithfulness, from their continued faithfulness, we now have a gospel presence here in Thunder Bay 2,000 years after Christ's death and resurrection. We are a direct result of the faithfulness of the apostles who received the Great Commission, who shared it with those around them, who then shared it with those around them, who then shared it with those around them, and so on and so forth for 2,000 years. Because throughout history, men and women knew this gospel to be the best news. It wasn't just good news, it was the best news. One to fully embrace. When I resigned from my last pastoral role, people always want to talk about my, my success in ministry and, and how successful my time at Lansing was and what that looked like. Asking the question, do I feel like I was successful? And it's a question that I've had a lot of time to think about and I have an answer. I, I had an answer then, it's fairly similar, but, but my answer's changed slightly, but more or less the same. But my answer to that question is that the success of my ministry can most effectively be measured by the ministry of those I ministered to. Right? The success of my ministry is not how well did I preach the gospel, but is how well did I grow in discipleship with you and how well were you discipled and trained so that you then could go and teach the gospel. And really it goes even the next step further. Really my success in ministry comes when those that I have been pouring my life into have then poured life into others who are then pouring life into others. And seeing that, that is, that is where the success starts. So my hope and goal is that I've made my life completely about Jesus. I know I haven't because I'm human, I fall short, I sin, I mess up, but I must press on because of the good news of Jesus is the best news. So this morning there are three takeaways. First, I hope that you have found this life-changing news. I hope that you're in this room today and you are confident in your knowledge and understanding of your salvation. I hope that you know that. But if you don't, don't go home today. Don't leave this place without talking to somebody. The elders are here. Pastor Brad is here this morning. You can even talk to me. Talk to somebody. Talk to whoever you came with about what this good news is and what it looks like and what it means to surrender your life to Christ. Second, if you have, if you have surrendered your life, if you have found this good news and it is becoming the best news, I hope you strive in life to show those around you that the gospel really is the best news. That it's not just something you do on Sundays, it's not just something you do on holidays, it's not just something you do to make your parents happy, but that you are 100% fully sold out for this best news. And lastly, we need to intentionally strive to live out a Great Commission lifestyle by sharing that best news with the world around us that is in desperate need of this good news. Every day we walk by people who are destined to spend eternity separated from Christ. 
And every day we are in those places where we have opportunity to share our love and knowledge and understanding of who God is with these people who desperately need to hear it. I pray that you would be bold in your faith, bold in your knowledge and understanding, and that we would see this community grow in its understanding of who God is. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you again for your son who you sent in our place to die for us when we were lost and hopeless and broken. God, I pray that this news would become so important and significant, Lord, that it is all we are about. God, and I pray that as a result of this, Thunder Bay would be changed. It would be a city that is on fire for you because of our faithfulness to you, Lord. God, we pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.